welcome to the In Development Podcast. My name is Allison. And my name is Lilith. And this is the podcast for all you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development in Edmonton Association. It's a nonprofit education and advocacy group bringing together like-minded people working to shape our city. Today's episode is another two-person interview. David and Melissa Campbell are the dream team behind the award-winning Missing Middle Housing Development, T5M Connect. T5M Connect is the first passive house certified multifamily building in Alberta. With more than 18 years of experience in the construction industry, David is highly respected in the Edmonton market. He has built a strong reputation among city officials, consultants, developers, clients, suppliers, and trade contractors. He's passionate about sustainable multifamily and redevelopment projects and has a strong background in design, development, and project management, particularly in the large and small-scale multifamily commercial and residential construction. David's expertise extends to energy-saving techniques, including Passive House Initiative, and he has worked on a range of projects encompassing both wood frame and concrete construction. He has extensive experience in the conversion of commercial projects, as well as new construction, including townhomes and other residential projects, handling them from concept all the way to completion. And Melissa is a collaborator, an optimist, and a believer in the power of the collective. She has been a speech-language pathologist for 19 years and is passionate about using these skills to build relationships and communication in groups and organizations. Melissa is the Director of Communications and Community Engagement at T5M Connect, a development company that builds multifamily housing that is environmentally sustainable, accessible, and community-oriented. Melissa recently launched, uh, launched Stop, Collaborate, and Listen Limited, a company that provides community engagement and group facilitation support to purpose-driven organizations and companies. She is an active community member and volunteer and sits on the board of the North Glenora Community League and is the chair of the board of Edmonton Youth Justice. The greatest challenge and joy of her life has been raising three incredible daughters with her husband, David. So before we interviewed David and Melissa, we were lucky enough to get a tour um, of their development project located in North Glenora. Unfortunately, we weren't able to see any of the units because they're all rented, um, but we got to see the outside and we got to talk with them about the design of the building and see that in real time. So that was really great, sort of set us up really nice for, nicely for our conversation with them. Yeah, it was definitely a worthwhile tour to to see. And we even saw the um, engagement board that they originally put out for their public engagement for the development at the time. And you'll hear later on in the episode of how some of the comments got actualized over the course of this project. Uh, but before we get into this episode, I wanted to go over with Allison uh, over some of the definitions that were mentioned that we don't think um, all of the listeners might be familiar with. So I will start off with SSRIA, or as I believe David um, referred to it as SRIA grants. So uh, that stands for Smart Sustainable Resilient Infrastructure Association, and they provide uh, organizations and companies with green building funding. SSRIA uh, provides support and growth opportunities for companies in the industry who want to be low carbon leaders, and their vision is to revolutionize the design, construction, and operation of buildings uh, to reach a zero carbon built environment by 2050. 
And the next term we wanted to define for you <clears throat> is lead, which is the means leadership and energy and environmental design. Uh, this is a green building certification program. And LEED certification can be given to individual buildings or master plan communities, and it's based on a point system. And then the last term we had for you, um, David referred to solar PVs during our conversation, and he's referring to the solar panels that they've installed on the roof. All right, so I hope everyone's ready for today's episode. Let's get into it. All right. Welcome, David and Melissa, to the show. We're really excited to chat with you today. Um, before we get into the main part of our discussion, we just want to learn a little bit more about who you are. So, um, Melissa, why don't you start off and tell us about your day job and sort of your background? Sure. So uh, I'm a speech therapist. I've been doing that for the last 20 years. Um, more recently, I have shifted into doing more uh, community engagement and group facilitation partly because of the this T5M Connect project. So I've started a consultancy doing that. And I have a couple of cool projects on the go, including a church that's redeveloping their land. And I'm supporting them with their um, community engagement. And also I'm uh, supporting some other nonprofit organizations with some group facilitation work. That's great. What exactly is your connection with T5M Connect? Uh, so we, we started uh, the project company and the project together, David and I. Um, so my role in the project was doing the community engagement and communications piece. So um, I did all of the connecting with neighbors and yeah, all of the communication side of things. Cool. What about you, David? What's your background? What's your day job? And, and where do you fit into T5M Connect? Um, so I'm a builder and developer. Um, I do a mix of managing kind of large scale, multi- family projects for other people and some uh, smaller scale uh, infill, single family and multifamily projects. Um, I'm really passionate about the development of missing middle housing. That's great. It sounds like both of your passions were kind of intertwined into this uh, T5M project. And, you know, especially with the speech therapy background, I can only imagine how you used it to do public engagement, but I'd love to talk about that in the rest of the podcast. Um, so Allison and I are really interested in uh, finding out what the origin story behind this development was and um, what got you interested in building this in the first place and choosing the site itself. Yeah, so this project was really an evolution um, from start to finish that started with just a site very close to our house um, in the middle of a mature neighborhood across from a school and a park with e easy public transportation to the university in downtown that came available. And it was kind of a dilapidated house that wasn't really possible to salvage or use in its current condition. And so it was a site that was just really screaming for a, a new use. Um, when we acquired the site, we really didn't know um, what the final outcome would be or what we'd end up creating, but that's how it all started. So our company um, develops and builds um, multifamily and some single family projects. And um, the intention when we bought the site was just to do a small scale. Sorry, you mean Homestretch was going to develop the site? Yeah, originally Homestretch was going to do it. It was a single lot. That's something that we could easily handle ourselves. But as the story kind of grew and, and we realized the full potential of the site, 
it seemed like there was an opportunity to do something way better. So that led to the partnership that we developed with Ryan and Michelle Young, who are neighbors and friends of ours that also lived in the community. And uh, when we told them about this potential project, um, they were also interested in doing some kind of development uh, like this. And the house adjacent to the one that we had purchased had been a rental house that was not maintained. And uh, so we had the opportunity to partner with Ryan and Michelle and purchase the adjacent house as well, which gave us, you know, two lots to work with uh, and gave us the potential to build something even better. Yeah, it's kind of an unusual situation. Like often, a lot of my clients work on small scale projects, and usually they're purchasing the corner lot first, and then trying to buy the lot next door. But your project was sort of the reverse of that. It's like you had an interior lot, and then were able to acquire that corner site, which, you know, just obviously provided you guys with a lot more building area to work with, Um, you know, sort of like, expands your opportunities for what you could develop on the site. Um, so from there, how did sort of the like the philosophy for your company and the, the project come together? Like, how did that evolve after you kind of consolidated those lots and established your partnership? It was like a bit of a long process, but it really started with us having the single lot and knowing knowing that our pension partners, like Brian and Michelle, wanted to do it. We really didn't have the idea to buy the second lot for at least a few months. Uh, later down the road, so that that idea really started after our you know community engagement, um, and specifically the sign that we put on the single lot um, when we just did one. Yeah, and that's the sign that we were uh, lucky enough to see during our tour that we did together uh, yesterday. So, so for the listeners, that would have been the day before we we recorded at this session. Um, it was great to see all the supportive messages on that uh, on that sign with with people from the local community um, and probably from around the community as well, just bringing in their opinions and their recommendations, which uh, Melissa, uh, from what we talked about yesterday, you ended up going with some of the uh, recommendations that were uh, written on a board, like creating a multifamily project, right? Yeah, for sure. So that was sort of the first, very first step in our community engagement before this was even really a project. Um, And so this was just a big sign that we put up in front of the first lot. And it just said, what, what should be built here? And we left a bunch of big Sharpies and people could write all of their ideas. And uh, it was really interesting to see what ideas people had. And some of them were, you know, not not great or (laughs) some people didn't take it seriously (laughs) but some of the ideas were really good and one of the ideas was buy the adjacent lot and build multifamily housing which we still don't know who wrote that um but uh so we another piece that we took from that sign was the accessible units which we can get into later but somebody had mentioned that on the sign having some accessibility features um so yeah that was kind of the first step and then I think our our community engagement was unique and I think quite a bit more extensive than than most developments but I it was really worth it because we got a lot of great ideas um, through doing that community engagement and um, it, I, I really think it led to a lot of buy-in throughout the process that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Other than the the board that you had um, for people to write their you know their feedback and their input on, how else did you connect with your with your neighbors um, early on in the process? 
So once we had uh, combined the two lots and had a bit of a sense of what we might build there, we knocked on the doors of all of the neighbors within 100 meters. So we had one-on-one -on -one conversations with all of the adjacent neighbors to get their input. Um, we had a backyard meeting with a group um, in the community that are opposed to infill development. Um, so we, we met with a bunch of people in a backyard and got to talk to them about what some of their concerns were. And then uh, just chats around the neighborhood because we live in the community. So we would be walking our dog and we'd bump into somebody and um, we're very involved in our community. We know a lot of people here. So there was a lot of just organic conversations that happened while we were out and about. Um, and then there was also that the city did their engagement as well. But I'm really glad that we were able to do our own because I felt like we had the opportunity to really communicate and have a conversation with people. So it was it was great. Public engagement probably went so different for uh, for you um, with the two of you being part of the community and having lived there for a significant amount of time and you know being involved with uh, with the neighbors, being friends with them or acquaintances with them. Um, there must have been, um, from what I imagine, some sort of a level of established trust already going for you, right? Yeah, I think so. I think for some people, it there was some cognitive dissonance, like how could you how could you love your neighborhood and want to build something in it at the same time that just didn't track for some people. But in a lot of ways, I think that helped because we had proven through our actions already that we really do love our neighborhood. And we really felt like this was a good thing for our community. So for sure, we had that good reputation going in. But it also gave us, like I said, that in for these really authentic conversations that we could have with neighbors. It sounds like you had a pretty comprehensive engagement process and, you know, probably a more unique experience than most people go through when they're proposing infill development, um, you know, sort of that opportunity to connect with your neighbors. Uh, and that actually leads to my next question for you is where did the name of the project come from? What does T5M Connect mean? So T5M is the first three digits of the postal code for the entire North Glenora neighborhood. So that's a bit of a nod to our community. And then connect was just a word that really resonated with us for this project in terms of, you know, we're connecting with our partners and creating this company, but we also wanted this project to be a place where the people living in the project can connect with each other, but also with the community at large. So that relates to the core principles that we had in mind right from the beginning when we were building this. So building community was a really important thing for us. Building community within the building where people feel as though they're a little community, but also uh, supporting the community at large and having this project be connected with the community. And another value of the company was doing everything that we do in an honest, authentic, and responsible manner. So that was something that was really important to us and came through with the engagement that we did. And then the other core value of the company was uh, demonstrating environmental leadership, um, which was something that was woven through in a lot of the construction and design decisions that we made. 
Yeah, we, we certainly got uh, a firsthand uh, look at all of the great designing corporations that were included for passive housing st- standards, for environmental standards. I especially loved the landscape piece with the uh, clover co- covered uh, ground. And I'd love to see that again in the spring or the summer to see, you know, what it looks like in all of its beauty. Right now, it was, you know, it was mostly covered with snow, but we, we did brush some snow off uh, off the side there and uh, got to see that. By the way, T5M is also the first three letters of the postal code of some of the Inglewood neighborhoods. So maybe that will inform your the location of your next project. Who knows? I have to always hand it to Lilith to um, bring in the dad jokes when we uh, and the and the dorky comments when we interview our guests. Um, but sort of move. And moving on, we're going to jump right into the discussion about the actual like development process and and how you guys went from start to finish on this. So we kind of already talked about how you consolidated the lots, you had purchased that interior lot and then and then built a partnership with your friends to to purchase the corner lot and consolidated those two. So then after that, tell us about the rezoning process. What was that like for you? How did that go? Um, Give us all the give us all the details. Um, it was a little tricky, actually. And I think the trickiest part was just figuring out exactly the best course of action to take. Um, we started off really thinking that this would fit into a standard zoning um, because certainly, you know, a zone change to, from RF1, which it was, to RF3 on the corner would have been supported. We could have done the same number of units as, you know, um, on each lot, four units and four secondary suites. We could have met the height restrictions, the side setbacks, front setbacks, everything. Um, what we was when we tried to fit within the constraints of the standard zoning, we ended up with a square box that really didn't have the characteristics of the project that we wanted to. And we played around with a little bit, uh, seeing if it would fit in our five. Um, but in the end, um, in the end, we decided that unless we wanted to compromise on the layout and the vision we had for the project, that the only way that it was going to fit was as a DC2. Um, so although we didn't add more units than we could have fit in a standard zone, um, we just decided to take that extra time and effort and really do the project how we want it. With the DC2 rezoning, did you find that with the DC2 naturally being a more prescriptive zone, uh, did you find that you had to um, provide additional studies, information, a lot more engagement that you would have done uh, with a standard zone at the time? Yeah, for sure. I don't think that most people would choose to do a DC2 unless they're really stuck on their ways, I guess. It is a ton more work um, and there's some more risks. So for example, you know, we had really done a lot or all of our schematic design before we even were able to apply for the rezoning application. Um, we did a bunch of work that probably you wouldn't need to do for a standard zone. Um, we did a traffic and parking analysis um, one thing that was really great was the shadow study that we did, and we were actually able to show that with our design, um, there would be no worse shadow impacts on our neighbor than there would be if we built a pair of skinny houses. And that was really important and really cool to show because the neighbor just to the north was concerned about light into our garden. The DC2 obviously adds a bunch more time and probably added six months to the the process and um, obviously triggered a whole bunch of extra engagement by the city. We'd already done our own engagement, so then this was kind of like a second round of engagement um, for 
for the city process. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about that engagement, the additional engagement that you had to do once you decided to go down the DC2 route? We had already done a lot of the extra engagement um, even before we got to that point. So some of the things that I mentioned before with the one-on-one and and group meetings that we had with people in the neighborhood. But an interesting thing was the city's engagement that they did, um, and this was during COVID, so it was all online, was one of the busiest uh, engagements they've ever had online, apparently. They had hundreds of comments from people. And interestingly, it was uh, almost a 50-50 split on that platform between people in opposition and people in favor of the project, which is pretty rare. And several people came to the rezoning hearing to speak in favor of our project. Uh, And I think part of that was because of the engagement that we did. But also, there's just a lot of support for this kind of project in neighborhoods like this. Um, So that was pretty exciting to see. Not a lot of people come to speak in favor at rezoning hearings, as I'm sure you know. And then council voted unanimously in favor of the rezoning. So that was great. That's amazing to to have such an active engagement page on, you know, your, your project, your baby, essentially. Just out of curiosity, do they have to get like a second file planner reviewing and figuring out all the comments just because there was so much on the online page or was the city team able to handle it uh, fairly well? I don't think they had somebody else on it but but the planner they did have assigned was very busy <laughs> taking a lot of calls. <laughs> <laughs> um, then with the council voting unanimously in favor of the rezoning, um, just wondering uh, from your perspective, Melissa and David, were you surprised? Were you confident behind that decision? How did that decision come to you? I think we were pretty confident that it would pass. Um, I don't know if we expected it to be unanimous necessarily, but I mean, we were just very confident in the project that it was the right thing to do. It, it aligns with the city plan. Um, so if council really believed in their own city plan, um, then they they sort of had to approve something like this. So I, I think we were pretty confident going in and not surprised that it passed. Yeah, I think it's a great example of the sort of incremental increase in density that city plan calls for, right, in the interior of neighborhoods where we want to increase density throughout all of Edmonton. This is such a great example of like how you can do that in a way that fits within the context of the neighborhood and is like sensitive to the surrounding area. Kind of just jumping back a little bit to talking about the zoning. So one of the things that Lily and I talked about in our previous episodes is the the sort of the shift with the new zoning bylaw and allowing a lot better opportunities for missing middle. The new zones have a lot more flexibility, um, especially with the mature neighborhood overlay going away. So do you think today, if you were to build this project, because you have done it under a standard zone, do you think you would have been able to achieve what you wanted to do without the DC2 process? Um, absolutely. I think this project would be an example of what they were looking to encourage more of when they redid the zoning bylaw. So this project essentially uh, works under the residential small scale zone. Um, It doesn't fit perfectly. So we would have to tweak the design a little bit to fit within the the zoning. Specifically, we would need a bit larger rear setback, um, but we would be able to have um, 
become smaller fronts. And, and so we couldn't just a project up and plop it on the same site and fit within the zoning, but we could easily have included, you know, in the architectural work right from the beginning, the compliant design. So it, it makes all the difference, actually. It changes it from, you know, being over a year to rezone and, and permit in a year of construction to being, you know, almost able to do twice as many projects in the same amount. Yeah, I'm hoping with the new RS zone that we'll see more more folks pursuing projects like what you you two have done on this site with your partners now that there there is that flexibility in the zone and they don't have to go through the rezoning process. They can just develop under that zone and not, you know, previously everyone you'd have to go to RF3 or RF5 or in your case a DC2, but now that um that piece is eliminated. And I think it'll open up a lot more opportunity for that sort of incremental small scale density that we're looking for. Uh, yeah, from, from where you said, David, it sounds like you theoretically would have uh, essentially had to get some variances on um, some of the setbacks to, to in the standard zone to make this, make this happen. And that um, takes away so much red tape. It takes away so much um, additional time required to, to get something approved. So, uh, I'm I'm really excited to to see in the future if you you know work on similar projects in similar zones um, what that process will look like for you now and uh, be being able to compare the previous standards versus the new standards and how it affected your overall project timeline. Yeah, absolutely. It's really important to be able to know what you can build right when you start a project. I try not to do any projects that require variances because. It's just a lot of risk and you can spend a lot of time and effort and and you're invested in a project and then you're not sure in the end that you're going to be able to, to build it or not. So the new zoning really helps um, just make things clear exactly what's allowed, what's not allowed. Well, um, speaking of, you know, knowing what you want to build in the first place, knowing what you want for um, an outcome for your development. I'm curious to know about how the design ideas have evolved from the start to the uh, finish of the project and yeah, how that iteration process went for, for you as you were you know, choosing between the standard uh, or a direct control zone. How many uh, different designs you had to go through to finally land on something, you know? So once we got past the figuring out if it would fit in a standard zone or the DC2. And we decided to fully commit to the DT, DC2 zoning. Um, the final product was almost exactly or very similar to the original sketch I gave the architect. And the biggest change, um, the biggest change was the units in the very back um, were dropped from two story to one story. And that was a direct uh, response to the public engagement that we did and the concerns of the neighbor and the son to her backyard. Um, but other than that, we really held firm on on the things that were important to us, which was primarily most of the units facing the street. Um, and this idea of uh, sunken central courtyard so that all of the lower units have, you know, direct access to grade and lots of natural light. So another thing that was important was having a mix of unit types and sizes. So there are 16 units total in the building. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we had one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom units uh, so that it would attract uh, different people from different walks of life. Uh, so we just felt like that was an important thing for the community and, um, it was a, a core value going in. So, um, interestingly, because of that intentional mix of units, 
it sort of just organically happened that we do have a mix of people in in the building now. So there are um, families, there are students, um, there are single moms, there's a couple of people who have downsized from a house that are empty nesters. So um, that's something that was really cool that just sort of happened because of the way that the building was designed. Uh, there are two wheelchair accessible units, so they're fully wheelchair accessible and barrier free. And that was important to us to include uh, those units um, that are fully accessible in the project. And then the uh, environmental sustainability piece was really important too, that David can speak to better than me. Yeah, so I just let's just jump right into that then. I know one of the main the main things that you guys addressed in the in the design of the the development was to include um, passive house design. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that is and, and how you incorporated it into your design of your building? Um, passive house is a high performance building standard. Um, it's kind of like the gold star of sustainable construction practices. And it has a few really important components. Um, high quality insulation, efficient windows and doors, thermal bridge free design, and air tightness. And so when you combine those like basic good building principles, um, you can get a, a design of a building that can really use very little energy. Um, so it's not quite the same thing as net zero because when you start looking at net zero, there's lots of different de definitions. Passivos is mostly about the actual construction techniques and materials, um, concentrating on the building first, and then it becomes a really easy or really good base to layer on renewable energy and make the um, project net zero. Um, this project's the first um, multi-family residential project in Alberta certified to the Passive House Center. So there's lots other, like there's lots of Passive House multi-families in Vancouver, there's some in Toronto, there's a lot in the Northeastern U.S. Um, but I'm happy to be the first in, or we're happy to be the first in Alberta. But the project didn't start out um, with the goal to be Passive House Standard. It really started out with the idea of let's do something better than code minimum and have no idea what that is. And so the first uh, the first step was just like research and learning because most of the buildings that I've built have not been what would be known as like a high performance building. Um, and we ended up settling on the Passivo standard because it was really prescriptive and clear. It's a really tight standard. You have to meet these requirements or you don't get certified and there's really no wiggle room or no way to bend or water down the standards. Um, and so I think I liked having a really clear mark that we had in um, And that's how we ended up on, on Passos. Um, congrats on uh, being the first in Alberta. That's, uh, that's a great accomplishment. Um, I have so many questions for the two of you regarding this. Uh, my first one is, did you look into LEED standards for this? Uh, second question <laughs> is, with with the two uh, design standards, uh, you know, sustainability, of course, and um, accessible building design, uh, did you look at potentially federal grants or provincial grants in the constructions of those? Um, the grants were really important, and it wasn't a federal grant that we got. It was um, a grant from Austria, um, and what they did was they helped us offset some of the costs um, for the sustainability component. So. 
um, they did give us some funding and it was really helpful for extra insulation, some of our upgraded windows and for um, demonstrating the heat pumps, the air source heat pumps in the Alberta climate. Yeah, so we're a, a green building demonstration project by Sria. And if you check their website, you can learn a whole bunch of uh, a bunch of information about the project. Our design is up there. Our energy modeling is up there. Um, there's some talks that we we gave about comparing different building envelopes and costs and benefits. If you're interested in the details, you can definitely check out their website. Yeah, we'll make sure to include it for our listeners uh, in case they're interested in learning more about that. That's great. Okay, so David, you mentioned heat pumps. Can you tell me a little bit more about those and what they do and and sort of like how they survive in uh, our crazy Alberta weather climate? Yeah, for sure. Um, So the building is all electric, so there's no gas line to the building. Um, And the heat's uh, heating and cooling is provided by air source heat pumps, which are fairly new technology. And there's always question about um, whether they work in our climate. Um, theoretically, they do. All their test data um, has really improved in the last couple of years. Theoretically, it, it works in our climate. Um, and we have no electric uh, resistance backup heat. So it's fully the air source heat pump and, and nothing else. And I was... Um, very happy to be able to say after minus 37 a couple of weeks ago that um, they worked perfectly and the units were um, checked in with a few tenants and the units were perfectly comfortable and everything worked fantastic. So I think it it's demonstrating that this technology is like here and it works and it works uh, even in Alberta in the most extreme temperatures that we see. Yeah, we get that you know, significant temperature fluctuation going from minus 35 to like zero degrees so it's good to know that that these can withstand the the temperature change in alberta and your tenants didn't have any issues um because in my apartment building which is very old and not very well sealed is like 15 degrees in my apartment when it's minus 35 and it's just like the heat cannot keep up so kind of wish i was living in your building when it was minus 35. um kind of jumping back we talked a little bit about net zero before but can you tell us a little bit more about that and how it relates to passive house design and then how it relates to your development as well um so this particular project is supposed to use at least 80 percent uh, less energy than a code compliant building so that's pretty typical for buildings being built to the passive build standard, there's data usually says between about 80 and 85% uh, less than code. Um, we have the solar PV system on the roof. Um, and so we know that at least 10 of the units are going to be uh, net zero. And we actually have an energy monitoring system uh, installed in the building and it looks like it's performing even a little bit better than we expected it to. Um, so the energy savings are really incredible for the building. That's great. And sorry, I think just to kind of tie back, the, the heat pumps also relate to your net zero goals as well, right? Am I am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, because when you think about true net zero, you can't really have a net zero building if you're using a natural gas heating source. Um, and so I think the first step for sustainability is to switch to an all electric building and then supplement any electricity that you are using with with um, site-generated um, renewable resources. In this case, the solar PV on the roof. Okay, in terms of, so now kind of j- jumping forward a little bit, I did have some questions about the construction side of things and how 
you know, the, the sustainability design elements that you incorporated into, into the building. How did that work at the construction stage? Did you like have any issues that you had to deal with? Just tell, tell us about how that went. Yeah, so the construction was a bit tricky and it took um, longer than normal. Um, when you're building, you know, a traditional multifamily building using subcontractors that are using techniques that are done every day, they know exactly what to do and they're kind of in and out and onto the next project. Um, but this building was designed right from the ground up with a lot of specialty products and required detailing and, and techniques that a lot of the subcontractors hadn't done before. Um, so we ended up working with, you know, some subcontractors that are kind of like in this specialty green building segment. They just didn't have the production that I would be used to seeing in a traditional multifamily build. And so it was just a lot more work to, you know, work with them on, on how exactly they need to do the work, what sequencing, um, how the air barrier is going to be done, how all the details are going to work together. Um, it went fine. It was just a bit more time and a bit more effort. So David, it seems like um, sustainable building design standards, as well as accessible building design standards, was what took up most of your and Melissa's time in, you know, and focus in considering uh, which design elements to incorporate. So um, outside of those two main uh, focus points, were there any other design considerations that you had to uh, deal with or wanted to incorporate into the building? Uh, in terms of the community orientation of the building, it was important for us that all of the units fronted either onto the sidewalk, a side path, or the central courtyard. So uh, that was something that was considered right from the beginning, um, and that allowed for it to have that sort of community orientation and help the residents be integrated into the community. Uh, the central courtyard was really important for being able to uh, achieve that. Um, but it also allowed for the wheelchair ramp, which uh, essentially goes right down the middle of the courtyard. Um, also, the lower units, uh, because of the, the way the building was designed, the lower units have a lot of light. So they have big windows, high ceilings. Um, so that was important to us too, that even though they're sort of basement suites, because they're below grade, they don't feel like it when you're in the units. Uh, so sort of the experience of the people living there was something that we were taking into consideration the whole time. I will say this to all of our listeners. When Allison and I uh, did the tour, we, we did see firsthand all of these things that Melissa just mentioned. And I absolutely can vouch for all of that. We saw the, the, the basement units. They didn't feel like basement units uh, because of uh, the, the grading and the stairs going down to the main floor. Um, the 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 ramp the the wheelchair ramp was uh, designed very consciously uh, around the the rest of the building footprint. Um, and one thing I don't think you mentioned, Melissa, but I think we saw an elevator, uh, a wheelchair elevator, um, towards the back of the lot. Yes, so there's a lift that's uh, adjacent to both of the wheelchair accessible units uh, and a ramp as well. So that was something that was interesting in speaking with the residents who live in those units was different people have different needs. So the lift is better for some people that sort of brings them right up to the parking lot, whereas the ramp is better for other people or for other uses. So we sort of have both options for those folks. I think it's important to point out that um, the accessibility piece wasn't even on our radar when we imagined the, the project. 
um, that piece came from something someone wrote on the engagement space. And now it's become like a core piece of our company that we're trying to include in, in any project that we do going forward. And that's something you said that was completely self-funded by T5M Connect, right? Yeah, we didn't have any grant funding for that. And it, it was tricky, actually, incorporating both the accessibility features and some of the environmental features. So that was a bit of a puzzle that we were always having to work on. Um, so, for example, the doors that we used because of the Passive House standard um, have a sort of a bit of a lip at the bottom, which made them not wheelchair accessible. So it was always this kind of give and take between those two features that we were figuring out as we go and, and we learned a lot about as we went. Uh, one of the other things that I wanted to ask about in related to sort of design consideration was the landscaping. And Lilith mentioned this earlier in the episode, but can you talk a little bit about how you landscaped the property? So we had a local uh, landscape designer help us with the landscape. So she actually lives adjacent right across the street from the project. And uh, she had this really cool way of approaching the landscaping with uh, guilds, she calls them. So they're the, the plants are um, purposefully chosen to sort of coexist within uh, the different areas of landscaping. So there's uh, clover and other um, sort of natural uh, local plants that were incorporated. Um, so it's really beautiful, but it also means um, there's a lot less maintenance, you know, it doesn't have to be mowed like grass would be um, and less water requirements. Uh, so that was a really special way that we were able to incorporate one of the neighbors who's Aaron Olafelt who did the design for us um, and it, it really made the project even more beautiful. Are there any um, other people who are in the community who were involved in this building? It's It seems like this project was very community driven from what we've heard from you so far. Even the landscape architect uh, on this was someone from the neighborhood. Yeah, it's, it's really cool how we were able to incorporate people living in the neighborhood. So the actual landscaper who um, planted all of the plants and, and did the, the, the labor piece of the landscaping also lives in the neighborhood. Our website was designed by um, somebody who lives in the neighborhood and the building manager who is uh, managing the the property now that there's folks living in there also lives in the community. That's really great to have. It's just like such a very community minded project um, and sort of like leading from that. Now that the project is built and you have tenants uh, living in it, what what was the response from the community members? And have you been able to rent out all of the units? Uh, so, yes, it was fully leased before construction was even completed. Uh, so that added some other um difficulties uh but yeah it was there was a lot of excitement um and interest in the project right from the beginning so uh it's fully leased and it has a wait list right now um and in terms of the response from the neighborhood there are still some people who who don't like the project um but those are mostly people who just, you know, they don't really like any project in the neighborhood. Um, but we have had a lot of people change their minds, actually. We've had people come to us and say, I wasn't sure about this uh, when it was being built. But now that I see it, I love it. I think it helps when you have actual people living in the building. So it isn't just this unknown 
entity that people are focusing on. They see that they're actual people who are community members and who are a part of our neighborhood now. So um, the response has been really great. Uh, and um, it's been really nice to see those people living in the building incorporating themselves into the community. Like I know a couple of them are helping to flood the rink, you know, so they, they've already started to get involved in the neighborhood, which is very cool. So as the project wrapped up, um, you know, you had great response from the community, which was great, changed some minds, which often doesn't happen. So kudos to you to be able to do that. Are there any other lessons learned or successes and failures from this project that you'll that you'll take forward with you into your next projects? Um, I think on the construction and sustainability side, um, we learned that the more you simplify the design and the more that you use standard um, construction materials, the better the work can go. And so we'll be looking pretty actively on the next project to simplify design wherever we can. Yeah, I think in terms of the accessibility, we this was a big learning process for us. It was a really iterative uh, process too. So we had um, Zachary Weeks, who's an accessibility consultant, help us with some of the accessibility features. But we also, um, we had the tenants tell us a lot about what their needs were. So for example, one thing we learned was everybody needs grab bars in different places in the bathroom. So we will never put the grab bars in before somebody moves in and then we can put them in where they need them. So that was a big learning piece for us. Um, the idea of being able to individualize things as much as possible and that everybody's needs aren't the same. Um, and we'd like to do more universal accessibility in future too. So that's something that we're kind of learning about as we go along. Um, affordability is something that we want to be able to incorporate into future projects as well. Um, it's, you know, it's financially difficult to do all of these things, but we really think that, that we can do it. Um, and really, we just throughout the consultation process learned a lot about what neighbors are concerned about and what we can address. Um, and and those people that sort of who change their minds about this project, we learned a lot about what their concerns were and why they were able to see this project differently throughout the process. Yeah, Melissa, it seems like, you know, just listening to the to the neighbors and and addressing some of their uh, concerns and following through with your design, a uh, building design, I, I think that that created such a winning project on all fronts. It, it seems like you've you've encountered a lot of successes on various fronts of, of this entire project, such as, you know, getting a lot of people engaged, um, getting unanimous votes from from council people being happy so with with all of that it's uh, i guess not surprising that uh t5m connect won uh the 2023 edmonton urban design award one of the uh, several that were given out i was there at the award ceremony and i saw uh, the two of you uh go up to the stage uh take that award so congrats to that yeah yeah thank you it was really exciting to win that award and and get the big super heavy <laughs> award that we <laughs> now have up in pride of place. Um, it, it was, you know, we didn't design the project with the award in mind, but when we were looking at, especially the, um, the big city moves section of the award, uh, 
it really just lined up so well with the priorities that the city has. And again, it wasn't, you know, we weren't building to the award, but I think our priorities are very similar as the city's. So uh, it was really exciting to, to get that award and be honored in that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it was more specifically the Housing Innovation Award, if I'm not mistaken. That's the one you won. And I think you got the City uh, city Plan Big City Movement recognition as well on that, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's great. So it must be so great to, you know, set this precedent for any future um missing middle housing development that will um, take place in in Edmonton. And I I think for you as developers uh, in the future, as well as other developers in the city. So with with that in mind, uh, I'm wondering uh, whether or not you think the same project could be successful outside of the North Glenora neighborhood. Um, Absolutely. There's dozens of neighborhoods that are essentially very similar to North Glenora. And this project could easily uh, fit in many of them. Um, if we're going to address a housing crisis, this is a super way to add homes for people um, while enhancing neighborhoods. Yeah, and I think I'm sort of this secondary to that is something we've talked about before when we were um, talking about the mix of units is that you're providing housing for people from all walks of life. And especially when we think about increasing density in our city and and providing opportunities for people to to live in their neighborhood when their situation changed. Like you said, you had some empty nesters who moved in. So these are great projects to build. So then people can can continue to stay in their neighborhood, even if their housing needs start to change over time, right? Um, so we're wrapping up our conversation on T5M Connect. This is so great to chat with you both about this project. It's such a great example of, of how we can do infill um, successfully in Edmonton. So that leads to my next question is, what are your next projects? Or do you have anything coming down the line? We're working on a couple of projects. So one's an eight unit building. Um, it's a mix of one and two bedrooms with some accessible units. Um, it's transit oriented um, just a couple hundred meters from one of the new LRT stops. Really excited about that. Um, we're, we're in early design on a 20-unit four-story building. Um, it's also in a mature and walkable neighborhood. And we're pretty actively looking for opportunities for more missing middle housing um, anywhere that's walkable and has good traffic. That's that's great. We will be keeping an eye out on the next Urban Design Awards and hoping that you will be submitting your future projects to <laughs> the competition. Uh, amazing. So um, something that Allison and I love to do at the end of these episodes is to get our guest speakers to uh, do a call to action for our listeners. Um, any any advice or, or just any last statement you'd like to share with them um, before we finish off the episode. So Melissa, maybe we'll start with you. Um, do you, would you like to do a call uh, to action for our listeners? Sure. Uh, from a community engagement perspective, I think if you're building what is good for the city and you believe in your project, uh, community engagement will only make it better. So I don't think people need to shy away from doing that. Um, and I think I think it's possible to build housing that is community oriented, environmentally sustainable and accessible and affordable. I think it is possible to do that. We just need to get out there and do it. Um, I think that developing and building is 
a whole series of choices. And if each time you make a choice, you just try and do a little bit better, you end up with a pretty fantastic product in the end. Thanks for the advice, uh, Melissa and David. This this has been amazing. We'll we'll definitely uh, keep an eye out on all your uh, future uh, adventures with Missing Middle Housing in Edmonton. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to chat with us today. Yeah, thanks for, for coming on the podcast. It was so great to talk to both of you. Thank you. This was great. So a pretty insightful interview we had with uh, David and Melissa I really enjoyed the fact that they were able to actualize this first multi-residential project in Alberta that's certified to meet passive housing standards, and it was feasible for them to accomplish. Yeah, and I think sort of jumping onto that, I what I found really interesting was that they were also able to incorporate accessibility into the design of their building um, and provide accessible and barrier-free units on the ground floor of their of their building. And I think often when we talk about, you know, ways to incorporate either green building technologies or accessibility, there's often the conversation that it's one or the other, like you can't afford, or it's not feasible to do both. But this is a great example of a project where that demonstrates that it is possible to do both of those things at the same time. That's right, Allison. I've seen so many building performers just, um, you know, not work out because they had to take out one or uh, both of those elements in order to make things work. But uh, another great thing that I've noticed um, while we were doing the tour and, you know, during our conversation with them is the fact that they were able to incorporate a mix of different units that actually allowed them to attract um, a variety Um, and different uh, residents into the same building. Um, And, you know, with this building catering to different demographics or life situations, you know, they had students and retirees living in the same uh, building. I think that makes uh, for a very interesting community and diverse neighbors. Yeah, and I think when we think about how our neighborhoods in Edmonton will evolve This is a great example of how you provide housing so that people can continue to live in their neighborhood for their entire life. And they don't have to move outside of their neighborhood when they need to downsize or they need, you know, a a house that like meets their needs as they change over the course of their life. This is the type of housing that we need in our neighborhoods in Edmonton so that people can can choose to stay in their neighborhood um, and not have to move out when their circumstances change. That, that's right. And that's one definition that we didn't throw around, I don't think, in the episode is aging in place. So that's this is a really good example of that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, here's the hot, uh, hot topic that Allison and I have been discussing ever since the interview and the tour is where is the next project going to be? Yeah, we're wondering if the the trend of the T5M building name will continue because there are other neighborhoods um, that fall within the T5M postal code. So Lilith, what's your prediction? Okay, so before before I say my prediction, uh, I just want to give all of our listeners a life hack that Allison actually came up with today. If you type in the first three letters of the postal code, or three characters of the postal code into Google Maps, it will actually highlight the entire uh, area on Google Maps for you that uses that postal code. So Allison, you did that. 
today and out of all of the neighborhoods that you see, which one would you choose? No, I asked you first. You have oh, okay. to guess first. Okay. <laughs> all right. Um, I'm going <laughs> to... You're right. You're right. I've been, I've been trying to trick you. I think, I think I'm going to go with Inglewood. Mm, okay. There's been a lot of infill happening there. Yeah, there has been. And a lot of like that sort of small scale, you know, what we would consider like a sensitive increase in density in those, in some of those neighborhoods or parts of those neighborhoods. Um, well, we only have two other options. It's either Westmount or Woodcroft. And I think I'm going to go with Westmount. That's a pretty good choice. I think that's where the next one will be. All right. Well, I hope um, David and Wilsa are listening to this segment and um, they can inform their decision based on our bets. <laughs> okay. Well, um, with uh, with that in mind, we'll, we'll one day come back to, to this, re-listen to this episode and see who was right. But until then, let's talk about what's happening in Edmonton these days. We have uh, the next uh, uh, Building Equity and Infill event coming up on February 28th. That's going to happen um, in the 103rd Street Center building in downtown Edmonton. Um, everyone who is interested, please go uh, to the IDEA webpage um, and sign up for the event, register for the event. Uh, there's some spaces still available. Yeah, and I'll just chime in. I highly encourage everyone to um, to come to this event. Lilith is one of the organizers behind Be Infill. Um, and the event series that corresponds with that. So it's going to be a really great panel discussion. Um, so please come come join us on the February 28th. I guess I'll be seeing you there too, Allison. That's great. Yes, I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, and other than that, is there anything else happening uh, with IDEA coming up? Yes, we have the Infill Insights webinar series. That's on March 14th. So stay tuned to Ideas website and social media channels for more information about that webinar. All right. And that concludes today's episode. Thanks, everybody, for chiming in for that great conversation with David and Melissa. Um, so as always, you can find Idea at infilledmonton.com and Instagram and Twitter at infilledmonton and on Facebook at infilleg. The podcast episodes are also on the Idea website, or you can subscribe to the In Development podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Great. And we also have a dedicated podcast email. If you have any ideas for topics you'd like to hear about or guests you'd like to uh, hear from, send us your thoughts at podcast at infilledmonton.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Lilith. And my name is Allison. We'll catch you next time. Bye.